Chapter twenty two of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter twenty two. The characteristic defects of Wordsworth's poetry, with the principles from which the judgment that they are defects is deduced. Their proportion to the beauties, for the greatest part characteristic of his theory only if mr wordsworth have set forth principles of poetry which his arguments are insufficient to support let him and those who have adopted his sentiments be set right by the confutation of those arguments and by the substitution of more philosophical principles and still let the due credit be given to the portion and importance of the truths which are blended with his theory truths the too exclusive attention to which had occasioned its errors by tempting him to carry those truths beyond their proper limits if his mistaken theory have at all influenced his poetic compositions let the effects be pointed out and the instances given but let it likewise be shown how far the influence has acted whether diffusively or only by starts whether the number and importance of the poems and passages thus infected be great or trifling compared with the sound portion and lastly whether they are inwoven into the texture of his works or are loose and separable the result of such a trial would evince beyond a doubt what it is high time to announce decisively and aloud that the supposed characteristics of mr wordsworth's poetry whether admired or reprobated whether their simplicity or simpleness faithful adherence to essential nature or wilful selections from human nature of its meanest forms and under the least attractive associations are as little the real characteristics of his poetry at large as of his genius and the constitution of his mind in a comparatively small number of poems he chose to try an experiment and this experiment we will suppose to have failed yet even in these poems it is impossible not to perceive that the natural tendency of the poet's mind is to great objects and elevated conceptions the poem entitled fidelity is for the greater part written in language as unraised and naked as any perhaps in the two volumes yet take the following stanza and compare it with the preceding stanzas of the same poem there sometimes doth a leaping fish send through the tarn a lonely cheer the crags repeat the raven's croak in symphony austere thither the rainbow comes the cloud and mist that spread the flying shroud and sunbeams and the sounding blast that if it could would hurry past but that enormous barrier holds it fast or compare the four last lines of the concluding stanza with the former half yes proof was plain that since the day on which the traveller thus had died the dog had watched about the spot or by his master's side how nourished here through such long time he knows who gave that love sublime and gave that strength of feeling great above all human estimate can any candid and intelligent mind hesitate in determining which of these best represents the tendency and native character of the poet's genius will he not decide that the one was written because the poet would so write and the other because he could not so entirely repress the force and grandeur of his mind but that he must in some part or other of every composition write otherwise in short that his only disease is the being out of his element like the swan that having amused himself for a while with crushing the weeds on the river's bank soon returns to his own majestic movements on its reflecting and sustaining surface let it be observed that i am here supposing the imagined judge to whom i appeal to have already decided against the poet's theory as far as it is different from the principles of the art generally acknowledged i cannot here enter into a detailed examination of mr wordsworth's works but i will attempt to give the main results of my own judgment after an acquaintance of many years and repeated perusals and though to appreciate the defects of a great mind it is necessary to understand previously its characteristic excellences 
yet i have already expressed myself with sufficient fullness to preclude most of the ill effects that might arise from my pursuing a contrary arrangement i will therefore commence with what i deem the prominent defects of his poems hitherto published the first characteristic though only occasional defect which i appear to myself to find in these poems is the inconstancy of the style under this name i refer to the sudden and unprepared transitions from lines or sentences of peculiar felicity at all events striking and original to a style not only unimpassioned but undistinguished he sinks too often and too abruptly to that style which i should place in the second division of language dividing it into the three species first that which is peculiar to poetry second that which is only proper in prose and third the neutral or common to both there have been works such as cowley's essay on cromwell in which prose and verse are intermixed not as in the consolation of boetius or the argenis of Berkeley, by the insertion of poems supposed to have been spoken or composed on occasions previously related in prose but the poet passing from one to the other as the nature of the thoughts or his own feelings dictated yet this mode of composition does not satisfy a cultivated taste there is something unpleasant in the being thus obliged to alternate states of feeling so dissimilar and this too in a species of writing the pleasure from which is in part derived from the preparation and previous expectation of the reader a portion of that awkwardness is felt which hangs upon the introduction of songs in our modern comic operas and to prevent which the judicious metastasia as to whose exquisite taste there can be no hesitation whatever doubts may be entertained as to his poetic genius uniformly place the aria at the end of the scene at the same time that he almost always raises and impassions the style of the recitative immediately preceding even in real life the difference is great and evident between words used as the arbitrary marks of thought our smooth market coin of intercourse with the image and superscription worn out by currency and those which convey pictures either borrowed from one outward object to enliven and particularize some other or used allegorically to body forth the inward state of the person speaking or such as are at least the exponents of his peculiar turn and unusual extent of faculty so much so indeed that in the social circles of private life we often find a striking use of the latter put a stop to the general flow of conversation and by the excitement arising from concentred attention produce a sort of damp and interruption for some minutes after but in the perusal of works of literary art we prepare ourselves for such language and the business of the writer like that of a painter whose subject requires unusual splendour and prominence is so to raise the lower and neutral tints that what in a different style would be the commanding colours are here used as the means of that gentle degradation requisite in order to produce the effect of a whole where this is not achieved in a poem the metre merely reminds the reader of his claims in order to disappoint them and where this defect occurs frequently his feelings are alternately startled by anticlimax and hyperclimax i refer the reader to the exquisite stanza cited for another purpose from the blind highland boy and then annex as being in my opinion instances of this disharmony in style the two following and one the rarest was a shell which he poor child had studied well the shell of a green turtle thin and hollow you might sit therein it was so wide and deep our highland boy oft visited the house which held this prize and led by choice or chance did thither come one day when no one was at home and found the door unbarred or page a hundred and seventy two volume one tis gone forgotten let me do my best there was a smile or two i can remember them i see the smiles worth all the world to me dear baby i must lay thee down thou troublest me with strange alarms 
smiles hast thou sweet ones of thine own i cannot keep thee in my arms for they confound me as it is i have forgot those smiles of his or page two hundred and sixty nine volume one thou hast a nest for thy love and thy rest and though little troubled with sloth drunken lark thou wouldst be loath to be such a traveller as i happy happy liver with a soul as strong as a mountain river pouring out praise to the almighty giver joy and jollity be with us both hearing thee or else some other as merry a brother i on the earth will go plodding on by myself cheerfully till the day is done the incongruity which i appear to find in this passage is that of the two noble lines in italics with the preceding and following so volume two page thirty close by a pond upon the further side he stood alone a minute space i guess i watched him he continuing motionless to the pool's further margin than i drew he being all the while before me full in view compare this with the repetition of the same image the next stanza but two and still as i drew near with gentle pace beside the little pond or moorish flood motionless as a clod the old man stood that heareth not the loud winds when they call and moveth altogether if it move at all or lastly the second of the three following stanzas compared both with the first and the third my former thoughts returned the fear that kills and hope that is unwilling to be fed cold pain and labour and all fleshly ills and mighty poets in their misery dead but now perplexed by what the old man had said my question eagerly did i renew how is it that you live and what is it you do he with a smile did then his words repeat and said that gathering leeches far and wide he travels stirring thus about his feet the waters of the ponds where they abide once i could meet with them on every side but they have dwindled long by slow decay yet still i persevere and find them where i may while he was talking thus the lonely place the old man's shape and speech all troubled me in my mind's eye i seemed to see him pace about the weary moors continually wandering about alone and silently indeed this fine poem is especially characteristic of the author there is scarce a defect or excellence in his writings of which it would not present a specimen but it would be unjust not to repeat that this defect is only occasional from a careful reperusal of the two volumes of poems i doubt whether the objectionable passages would amount in the whole to one hundred lines not the eighth part of the number of pages in the excursion the feeling of incongruity is seldom excited by the diction of any passage considered in itself but by the sudden superiority of some other passage forming the content the second defect i can generalize with tolerable accuracy if the reader will pardon an uncouth and new coined word there is i should say not seldom a matter of factness in certain poems this may be divided into first a laborious minuteness and fidelity in the representation of objects and their positions as they appeared to the poet himself secondly the insertion of accidental circumstances in order to the full explanation of his living characters their dispositions and actions which circumstances might be necessary to establish the probability of a statement in real life where nothing is taken for granted by the hearer but appears superfluous in poetry where the reader is willing to believe for his own sake to this accidentality i object as contravening the essence of poetry which aristotle pronounces to be swidiotaton kai philosophotaton genos the most intense weighty and philosophical product of human art adding as the reason that it is the most catholic and abstract the following passage from davenant's prefatory letter to hobbes well expresses this truth when i considered the actions which i meant to describe those inferring the persons i was again persuaded rather to choose those of a former age than the present and in a century so far removed as might preserve me from their improper examinations who know not the requisites of a poem nor how much pleasure they lose and even the pleasure of heroic poesy are not unprofitable who take away the liberty of a poet and fetter his feet in the shackles of an historian 
for why should a poet doubt in story to mend the intrigues of fortune by more delightful conveyances of probable fictions because austere historians have entered into bond to truth an obligation which were in poets as foolish and unnecessary as is the bondage of false martyrs who lie in chains for a mistaken opinion but by this i would imply that truth narrative and past is the idol of historians who worship a dead thing and truth operative and by effects continually alive is the mistress of poets who hath not her existence in matter but in reason for this minute accuracy in the painting of local imagery the lines in the excursion pages ninety six ninety seven and ninety eight may be taken if not as a striking instance yet as an illustration of my meaning it must be some strong motive as for instance that the description was necessary to the intelligibility of the tale which could induce me to describe in a number of verses what a draughtsman could present to the eye with incomparably greater satisfaction by half a dozen strokes of his pencil or the painter with as many touches of his brush such descriptions too often occasion in the mind of a reader who is determined to understand his author a feeling of labour not very dissimilar to that with which he would construct a diagram line by line for a long geometrical proposition it seems to be like taking the pieces of a dissected map out of its box we first look at one part and then at another then join and dovetail them and when the successive acts of attention have been completed there is a retrogressive effort of mind to behold it as a whole the poet should paint to the imagination not to the fancy and i know no happier case to exemplify the distinction between these two faculties masterpieces of the former mode of poetic painting abound in the writings of milton for example the fig-tree not that kind for fruit renowned but such as at this day to indians known in malabar or deccan spreads her arms branching so broad and long that in the ground the bended twigs take root and daughters grow about the mother-tree a pillared shade high over-arched and echoing walks between there off the indian herdsman shunning heat shelters in cool and tends his pasturing herds at hoop-holes cut through thickest shade this is creation rather than painting or if painting yet such and with such co-presence of the whole picture flashed at once upon the eye as the sun paints in a camera obscura but the poet must likewise understand and command what bacon calls the vestigia communia of the senses the latency of all in each and more especially as by a magical penny duplex the excitement of vision by sound and the exponents of sound thus the echoing walks between may be almost said to reverse the fable in tradition of the head of memnon in the egyptian statue such may be deservedly entitled the creative words in the world of imagination the second division respects an apparent minute adherence to matter of fact in character and incidents a biographical attention to probability and an anxiety of explanation and retrospect under this head i shall deliver with no feigned dividends the results of my best reflection on the great point of controversy between mr wordsworth and his objectors namely on the choice of his characters i have already declared and i trust justified my utter dissent from the mode of argument which his critics have hitherto employed to their question why did you choose such a character or a character from such a rank of life the poet might in my opinion fairly retort why with the conception of my character did you make wilful choice of mean or ludicrous associations not furnished by me but supplied from your own sickly and fastidious feelings how was it indeed probable that such arguments could have any weight with an author whose plan whose guiding principle and main object it was to attack and subdue that state of association which leads us to place the chief value on those things on which man differs from man and to forget or disregard the high dignities which belong to human nature the sense and the feeling which may be and ought to be found in all ranks the feelings with which as christians we contemplate a mixed congregation rising or kneeling before their common maker mr wordsworth would have us entertain at all times 
as men and as readers and by the excitement of this lofty yet prideless impartiality in poetry he might hope to have encouraged its continuance in real life the praise of good men be his in real life and i trust even in my imagination i honour a virtuous and wise man without reference to the presence or absence of artificial advantages whether in the person of an armed baron a laurelled bard or of an old peddler or still older leech-gatherer the same qualities of head and heart must claim the same reverence and even in poetry i am not conscious that i have ever suffered my feelings to be disturbed or offended by any thoughts or images which the poet himself has not presented but yet i object nevertheless and for the following reasons first because the object in view as an immediate object belongs to the moral philosopher and would be pursued not only more appropriately but in my opinion with far greater probability of success in sermons or moral essays than in an elevated poem it seems indeed to destroy the main fundamental distinction not only between a poem and prose but even between philosophy and works of fiction inasmuch as it proposes truth for its immediate object instead of pleasure now till the blessed time shall come when truth itself shall be pleasure and both shall be so united as to be distinguishable in words only not in feeling it will remain the poet's office to proceed upon that state of association which actually exists as general instead of attempting first to make it what it ought to be and then to let the pleasure follow but here is unfortunately a small hysteron proteron for the communication of pleasure is the introductory means by which alone the poet must expect to moralize his readers secondly though i were to admit for a moment this argument to be groundless yet how is the moral effect to be produced by merely attaching the name of some low profession to powers which are least likely and to qualities which are assuredly not more likely to be found in it the poet speaking in his own person may at once delight and improve us by sentiments which teach us the independence of goodness of wisdom and even of genius on the favours of fortune and having made a due reverence before the throne of antonine he may bow with equal awe before epictetus among his fellow-slaves and rejoice in the plain presence of his dignity who is not at once delighted and improved when the poet wordsworth himself exclaims o oh, many are the poets that are sown by nature men endowed with highest gifts the vision and the faculty divine yet wanting the accomplishment of verse nor having e'er as life advanced been led by circumstance to take unto the height the measure of themselves these favoured beings all but a scattered few live out their time husbanding that which they possess within and go to the grave unthought of strongest minds are often those of whom the noisy world hears least to use a colloquial phrase such sentiments in such language do one's heart good though i for my part have not the fullest faith in the truth of the observation on the contrary i believe the instances to be exceedingly rare and should feel almost as strong an objection to introduce such a character in a poetic fiction as a pair of black swans on a lake in a fancy landscape when i think how many and how much better books than homer or even than herodotus pindar or aeschylus could have read are in the power of almost every man in a country where almost every man is instructed to read and write and how restless how difficultly hidden the powers of genius are and yet find even in situations the most favourable according to mr wordsworth for the formation of a pure and poetic language in situations which ensure familiarity with the grandest objects of the imagination but one burns among the shepherds of scotland and not a single poet of humble life among those of english lakes and mountains i conclude that poetic genius is not only a very delicate but a very rare plant but be this as it may the feelings with which i think of chatterton the marvellous boy the sleepless soul that perished in his pride of burns who walked in glory and in joy behind his plough upon the mountain-side are widely different from those with which i should read a poem where the author having occasion for the character of a poet and a philosopher in the fable of his narration 
had chosen to make him a chimney-sweeper and then in order to remove all doubts on the subject had invented an account of his birth parentage and education with all the strange and fortunate accidents which had concurred in making him at once poet philosopher and sweep nothing but biography can justify this if it be admissible even in a novel it must be one in the manner of defoe's that were meant to pass for histories not in the manner of fielding's in the life of moll flanders or colonel jack not in a tom jones or even a joseph andrews much less then can it be legitimately introduced in a poem the characters of which amid the strongest individualization must still remain representative the precepts of horace on this point are grounded on the nature both of poetry and of the human mind they are not more peremptory than wise and prudent for in the first place a deviation from them perplexes the reader's feelings and all the circumstances which are feigned in order to make such accidents less improbable divide and disquiet his faith rather than aid and support it spite of all attempts the fiction will appear and unfortunately not as fictitious but as false the reader not only knows that the sentiments and language are the poet's own and his own too in his artificial character as poet but by the fruitless endeavours to make him think the contrary he is not even suffered to forget it the effect is similar to that produced by an epic poet when the fable and the characters are derived from scripture history as in the messiah of klopstock or in cumberland's calvary and not merely suggested by it as in the paradise lost of milton that illusion contradistinguished from delusion that negative faith which simply permits the images presented to work by their own force without either denial or affirmation of their real existence by the judgment is rendered impossible by their immediate neighbourhood to words and facts of known and absolute truth a faith which transcends even historic belief must absolutely put out this mere poetic analogon of faith as the summer sun is said to extinguish our household fires when it shines full upon them what would otherwise have been yielded to as pleasing fiction is repelled as revolting falsehood the effect produced in this latter case by the solemn belief of the reader is in a less degree brought about in the instances to which i have been objecting by the balked attempts of the author to make him believe add to all the foregoing the seeming uselessness both of the project and of the anecdotes from which it is to derive support is there one word for instance attributed to the peddler in the excursion characteristic of a peddler one sentiment that might not more plausibly even without the aid of any previous explanation have proceeded from any wise and beneficent old man of a rank or profession in which the language of learning and refinement are natural and to be expected need the rank have been at all particularized where nothing follows which the knowledge of that rank is to explain or illustrate when on the contrary this information renders the man's language feelings sentiments and information a riddle which must itself be solved by episodes of anecdote finally when this and this alone could have induced a genuine poet to imweave in a poem of the loftiest style and on subjects the loftiest and of the most universal interest such minute matters of fact not unlike those furnished for the obituary of a magazine by the friends of some obscure ornament of society lately deceased in some obscure town as among the hills of athol he was born there on a small hereditary farm an unproductive slip of rugged ground his father dwelt and died in poverty while he whose lowly fortune i retrace the youngest of three sons was yet a babe a little one unconscious of their loss but ere he had outgrown his infant days his widowed mother for a second mate espoused the teacher of the village school who on her offspring zealously bestowed needful instruction from his sixth year the boy of whom i speak in summer tended cattle on the hills but through the inclement and the perilous days of long continuing winter he repaired to his stepfather's school etc for all the admirable passages interposed in this narration might with trifling alterations have been far more appropriately and with far greater verisimilitude told of a poet in the character of a poet 
and without incurring another defect which I shall now mention, and a sufficient illustration of which will have been here anticipated. Third, an undue predilection for the dramatic form in certain poems, from which one or other of two evils result. Either the thoughts and diction are different from that of the poet, and then there arises an incongruity of style, or they are the same and indistinguishable, and then it presents a species of ventriloquism, where two are represented as talking, while in truth one man only speaks. The fourth class of defects is closely connected with the former, but yet are such as arise likewise from an intensity of feeling disproportionate to such knowledge and value of the objects described, as can be fairly anticipated of men in general, even of the most cultivated classes, and with which therefore few only, and those few particularly circumstanced, can be supposed to sympathise. In this class I comprise occasional prolixity, repetition, and an eddying instead of progression of thought. As instances, see pages 27, 28, and 62 of the poems, volume 1, and the first eighty lines of the sixth book of the excursion. Fifth and last, thoughts and images too great for the subject. This is an approximation to what might be called mental bombast, as distinguished from verbal, for, as in the latter there is a disproportion of the expressions to the thoughts, so, in this, there is a disproportion of thought to the circumstance and occasion. This, by the by, is a fault of which none but a man of genius is capable. It is the awkwardness and strength of Hercules, with the distaff of Omphala. It is a well-known fact that bright colours in motion both make and leave the strongest impressions on the eye. Nothing is more likely, too, than that a vivid image or visual spectrum, thus originated, may become the link of association in recalling the feelings and images that had accompanied the original impression. But if we describe this in such lines as, they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude, in what words shall we describe the joy of retrospection, when the images and virtuous actions of a whole well-spent life pass before that conscience, which is indeed the inward eye, which is indeed the bliss of solitude? Assuredly we seem to sink most abruptly, not to say burlesquely, and almost as in a medley from this couplet to, And then my heart with pleasure fills, and dances with the daffodils. Volume 1, page 328. The second instance is from Volume 2, page 12, where the poet having gone out for a day's tour of pleasure, meets early in the morning with a knot of gypsies, who had pitched their blanket tents and straw beds, together with their children and asses, in some field by the roadside. At the close of the day on his return, Arturus found them in the same place. Twelve hours, says he. Twelve hours, twelve bounteous hours are gone, while I have been a traveller under open sky, much witnessing of change and cheer, yet as I left, I find them here. Whereat the poet, without seeming to reflect that the poor tawny wanderers might probably have been tramping for weeks together through road and lane, over moor and mountain, and consequently must have been right glad to rest themselves, their children and cattle, for one whole day, and overlooking the obvious truth that such repose might be quite as necessary for them as a walk of the same continuance was pleasing or healthful for the more fortunate poet, expresses his indignation in a series of lines, the diction and imagery of which would have been rather above than below the mark, had they been applied to the immense empire of China in progressive for thirty centuries. The weary sun betook himself to rest, then issued Vesper from the fulgent west, outshining like a visible god, the glorious path in which he trod, and now ascending after one dark hour, and one night's diminution of her power. Behold the mighty moon, this way she looks, as if at them, but they regard not her, O oh, better wrong and strife, better vain deeds or evil than such life. The silent heavens have goings-on, the stars have tasks, but these have none. The last instance of this defect, for I know no other than these already cited, is from the Ode, page 351, volume 2, where speaking of a child, a six-years darling of a pygmy size, he thus addresses him. Thou best philosopher, who yet dost keep thy heritage, thou eye among the blind, 
that deaf and silent reads the eternal deep haunted for ever by the eternal mind mighty prophet seer blessed on whom those truths do rest which we are toiling all our lives to find thou over whom thy immortality broods like the day a master o'er a slave a present which is not to be put by now here not to stop at the daring spirit of metaphor which connects the epithets deaf and silent with the apostrophized eye or if we are to refer it to the preceding word philosopher the faulty and equivocal syntax of the passage and without examining the propriety of making a master brood o'er a slave or the day brood at all we will merely ask what does all this mean in what sense is a child of that age a philosopher in what sense does he read the eternal deep in what sense is he declared to be for ever haunted by the supreme being or so inspired as to deserve the splendid titles of a mighty prophet a blessed seer by reflection by knowledge by conscious intuition or by any form or modification of consciousness these would be tidings indeed but such as would presuppose an immediate revelation to the inspired communicator and require miracles to authenticate his inspiration children at this age give us no such information of themselves and at what time were we dipped in the lethe which has produced such utter oblivion of a state so godlike there are many of us that still possess some remembrances more or less distinct respecting themselves at six years old pity that the worthless straws only should float while treasures compared with which all the mines of golconda and mexico were but straws should be absorbed by some unknown gulf into some unknown abyss but if this be too wild and exorbitant to be suspected as having been the poet's meaning if these mysterious gifts faculties and operations are not accompanied with consciousness who else is conscious of them or how can it be called the child if it be no part of the child's conscious being for what i know the thinking spirit within me may be substantially one with the principle of life and of vital operation for what i know it might be employed as a secondary agent in the marvellous organization and organic movements of my body but surely it would be strange language to say that i construct my heart or that i propel the finer influences through my nerves or that i compress my brain and draw the curtains of sleep round my own eyes spinoza and bayman were on different systems both pantheists and among the ancients there were philosophers teachers of the en kai pan who not only taught that god was all but that this all constituted god yet not even these would confound the part as a part with the whole as the whole nay in no system is the distinction between the individual and god between the modification and the one only substance more sharply drawn than in that of spinoza jacobi indeed relates of blessing that after a conversation with him at the house of the poet gleim the tetaeus and anacreon of the german parnassus in which conversation lessing had avowed privately to jacobi his reluctance to admit any personal existence of the supreme being or the possibility of personality except in a finite intellect and while they were sitting at table a shower of rain came on unexpectedly gleim expressed his regret at the circumstance because they had meant to drink their wine in the garden upon which lessing in one of his half-earnest half-joking moods nodded to jacobi and said it is i perhaps that am doing that i e raining and jacobi answered or perhaps i gleim contented himself with staring at them both without asking for any explanation so with regard to this passage in what sense can the magnificent attributes above quoted be appropriated to a child which would not make them equally suitable to a bee or a dog or a field of corn or even to a ship or the wind and waves that propel it the omnipresent spirit works equally in them as in the child and the child is equally unconscious of it as they it cannot surely be that the four lines immediately following are to contain the explanation to whom the grave is but a lonely bed without the sense or sight of day or the warm light a place of thought where we in waiting lie surely it cannot be that this wonder-rousing apostrophe is but a comment on the little poem we are seven 
that the whole meaning of the passage is reducible to the assertion that a child who by the by at six years old would have been better instructed in most christian families has no other notion of death than that of lying in a dark cold place and still i hope not as in a place of thought not the frightful notion of lying awake in his grave the analogy between death and sleep is too simple too natural to render so horrid a belief possible for children even had they not been in the habit as all christian children are of hearing the latter term used to express the former but if the child's belief be only that he is not dead but sleepeth wherein does it differ from that of his father and mother or any other adult and instructed person to form an idea of a thing's becoming nothing or if nothing becoming a thing it is impossible to all finite beings alike of whatever age and however educated or uneducated thus it is with splendid paradoxes in general if the words are taken in the common sense they convey an absurdity and if in contempt of dictionaries and custom they are so interpreted as to avoid the absurdity the meaning dwindles into some bold truism thus you must at once understand the words contrary to their common import in order to arrive at any sense and according to their common import if you are to receive from them any feeling of sublimity or admiration though the instances of this defect in mr wordsworth's poems are so few that for themselves it would have been scarcely just to attract the reader's attention toward them yet i have dwelt on it and perhaps the more for this very reason for being so very few they cannot sensibly detract from the reputation of an author who is even characterized by the number of profound truths in his writings which will stand the severest analysis and yet few as they are they are exactly those passages which his blind admirers would be most likely and best able to imitate but wordsworth where he is indeed wordsworth may be mimicked by copyists he may be plundered by plagiarists but he cannot be imitated except by those who are not born to be imitators for without his depth of feeling and his imaginative power his sense would want its vital warmth and peculiarity and without his strong sense his mysticism would become sickly mere fog and dimness to these defects which as appears by the extracts are only occasional i may oppose with far less fear of encountering the descent of any candid and intelligent reader the following for the most part correspondent excellences first an austere purity of language both grammatically and logically in short a perfect appropriateness of the words to the meaning of how high value i deem this and how particularly estimable i hold the example at the present day has been already stated and in part too the reasons on which i ground both the moral and intellectual importance of habituating ourselves to a strict accuracy of expression it is noticeable how limited an acquaintance with the masterpieces of art will suffice to form a correct and even a sensitive taste where none but masterpieces have been seen and admired while on the other hand the most correct notions and the widest acquaintance with the words of excellence of all ages and countries will not perfectly secure us against the contagious familiarity with the far more numerous offspring of tastelessness or of a perverted taste if this be the case as it notoriously is with the arts of music and painting much more difficult will it be to avoid the infection of multiplied and daily examples in the practice of an art which uses words and words only as its instruments in poetry in which every line every phrase may pass the ordeal of deliberation and deliberate choice it is possible and barely possible to attain that ultimatum which i have ventured to propose as the infallible test of a blameless style namely its untranslatableness in words of the same language without injury to the meaning be it observed however that i include in the meaning of a word not only its correspondent object but likewise all the associations which it recalls for language is framed to convey not the object alone but likewise the character mood and intentions of the person who is representing it in poetry it is practicable to preserve the diction uncorrupted by the affectations and misappropriations which promiscuous authorship 
and reading not promiscuous only because it is disproportionally most conversant with the compositions of the day have rendered general yet even to the poet composing in his own province it is an arduous work and as the result and pledge of a watchful good sense of fine and luminous distinction and of complete self-possession may justly claim all the honour which belongs to an attainment equally difficult and valuable and the more valuable for being rare it is at all times the proper food of the understanding but in an age of corrupt eloquence it is both food and antidote in prose i doubt whether it be even possible to preserve our style wholly unalloyed by the vicious phraseology which meets us everywhere from the sermon to the newspaper from the harangue of the legislator to the speech from the convivial chair announcing a toast or sentiment our chains rattle even while we are complaining of them the poems of boetius rise high in our estimation when we compare them with those of his contemporaries as sidonius apollinaris and others they might even be referred to a purer age but that the prose in which they are set as jewels in a crown of lead or iron betrays the true age of the writer much however may be effected by education i believe not only from grounds of reason but from having in great measure assured myself of the fact by actual though limited experience that to a youth led from his first boyhood to investigate the meaning of every word and the reason of its choice and position logic presents itself as an old acquaintance under new names on some future occasion more especially demanding such disquisition i shall attempt to prove the close connection between veracity and habits of mental accuracy the beneficial after-effects of verbal precision in the preclusion of fanaticism which masters the feelings more especially by indistinct watchwords and to display the advantages which language alone at least which language with incomparably greater ease and certainty than any other means presents to the instructor of impressing modes of intellectual energy so constantly so imperceptibly and as it were by such elements and atoms as to secure in due time the formation of a second nature when we reflect that the cultivation of the judgment is a positive command of the moral law since the reason can give the principle alone and the conscience bears witness only to the motive while the application and effects must depend on the judgment when we consider that the greater part of our success and comfort in life depends on distinguishing the similar from the same that which is peculiar in each thing from that which it has in common with others so as still to select the most probable instead of the merely possible or positively unfit we shall learn to value earnestly and with a practical seriousness a mean already prepared for us by nature and society of teaching the young mind to think well and wisely by the same unremembered process and with the same never-forgotten results as those by which it is taught to speak and converse now how much warmer the interest is how much more genial the feelings of reality and practicability and thence how much stronger the impulses to imitation are which a contemporary writer and especially a contemporary poet excites in youth and commencing manhood has been treated of in the earlier pages of these sketches i have only to add that all the praise which is due to the exertion of such influence for a purpose so important joined with that which must be claimed for the infrequency of the same excellence in the same perfection belongs in full right to mr wordsworth i am far however from denying that we have poets whose general style possesses the same excellence as mr moore lord byron mr bowles and in all his later and more important works our laurel honouring laureate but there are none in whose works i do not appear to myself to find more exceptions than in those of wordsworth quotations or specimens would here be wholly out of place and must be left for the critic who doubts and would invalidate the justice of this eulogy so applied the second characteristic excellence of mr wordsworth's work is a correspondent weight and sanity of the thoughts and sentiments one not from books but from the poet's own meditative observation they are fresh and have the dew upon them his muse at least when in her strength of wing and when she hovers aloft in her proper element makes audible a linked lay of truth of truth profound a sweet continuous lay 
not learnt but native her own natural notes even throughout his smaller poems there is scarcely one which is not rendered valuable by some just and original reflection ch twenty five volume two or the two following passages in one of his humblest compositions o reader had you in your mind such stores as silent thought can bring o gentle reader you would find a tale in everything and i have heard of hearts unkind kind deeds with coldness still returning alas the gratitude of men has oftener left me mourning or in a still higher strain the six beautiful quatrains page hundred and thirty four thus fares it still in our decay and yet the wiser mind mourns less for what age takes away than what it leaves behind the blackbird in the summer trees the lark upon the hill let loose their carols when they please are quiet when they will with nature never do they wage a foolish strife they see a happy youth and their old age is beautiful and free but we are pressed by heavy laws and often glad no more we wear a face of joy because we have been glad of yore if there is one who need bemoan his kindred laid in earth the household hearts that were his own it is the man of mirth my days my friend are almost gone my life has been approved and many love me but by none am i enough beloved or the sonnet on bonaparte page two hundred and two volume two or finally for a volume would scarce suffice to exhaust the instances the last stanza of the poem on the withered celandine volume two page three hundred and twelve to be a prodigal's favourite then worse truth a miser's pensioner behold our lot o man that from thy fair and shining youth age might but take the things youth needed not both in respect of this and of the former excellence mr wordsworth strikingly resembles samuel daniel one of the golden writers of our golden elizabethan age now most causelessly neglected samuel daniel whose diction bears no mark of time no distinction of age which has been and as long as our language shall last will be so far the language of the to-day and for ever as that it is more intelligible to us than the transitory fashions of our own particular age a similar praise is due to his sentiments no frequency of perusal can deprive them of their freshness for though they are brought into the full daylight of every reader's comprehension yet are they drawn up from depths which few in any age are privileged to visit into which few in any age have courage or inclination to descend if mr wordsworth is not equally with daniel alike intelligible to all readers of average understanding in all passages of his works the comparative difficulty does not arise from the greater impurity of the ore but from the nature and uses of the metal a poem is not necessarily obscure because it does not aim to be popular it is enough if a work be perspicuous to those for whom it is written and fit audience find though few to the ode on the intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood the poet might have prefixed the lines which dante addresses to one of his own canzoni canzone i credo che saranno radi color che tua ragione intendan bene tanto lo sei faticoso ed alto o lyric song there will be few i think who may thy import understand aright thou art for them so arduous and so high but the ode was intended for such readers only as had been accustomed to watch the flux and reflux of their inmost nature to venture at times into the twilight realms of consciousness and to feel a deep interest in modes of inmost being to which they know that the attributes of time and space are inapplicable and alien but which yet cannot be conveyed save in symbols of time and space for such readers the sense is sufficiently plain and they will be as little disposed to charge mr wordsworth with believing the platonic pre-existence in the ordinary interpretation of the words as i am to believe that plato himself ever meant or taught it pola oi ut ancunos nocea bellae and don enti pharetras fernata sintoisin es deto pan hermaenon chatisei sophos o pola edos fua mathontes de labroi panglossia coraces os acranta gareton 
Dios pros on Nietzsche Theon. Third, and wherein he soars far above Daniel, the sinewy strength and originality of single lines and paragraphs, the frequent curiosa felicitas of his diction, of which I need not here give specimens, having anticipated them in a preceding page. This beauty, and as eminently characteristic of Wordsworth's poetry, his rudest assailants have felt themselves compelled to acknowledge and admire. Fourth, the perfect truth of nature in his images and descriptions, as taken immediately from nature, and proving a long and genial intimacy with the very spirit which gives the physiognomic expression to all the works of nature. Like a green field reflected in a calm and perfectly transparent lake, the image is distinguished from the reality only by its greater softness and lustre. Like the moisture or the polish on a pebble, genius neither distorts nor false colours its objects, but on the contrary brings out many a vein and many a tint, which escape the eye of common observation, thus raising to the rank of gems what had been often kicked away by the hurrying foot of the traveller on the dusty high road of custom. Let me refer to the whole description of skating, volume 1, page 42 to 47, especially to the lines, So through the darkness and the cold we flew, and not a voice was idle, with the din, meanwhile the precipices rang aloud, the leafless trees and every icy crag tinkled like iron, while the distant hills into the tumult sent an alien sound of melancholy not unnoticed, while the stars eastward were sparkling clear, and in the west the orange sky of evening died away. Or to the poem on the green linnet, volume 1, page 244. What can be more accurate yet more lovely than the two concluding stanzas? Upon yon tuft of hazel trees, that twinkle to the gusty breeze, behold him perched in ecstasies, yet seeming still to hover, there where the flutter of his wings upon his back and body flings shadows and sunny glimmerings that cover him all over, while thus before my eyes he gleams, a brother of the leaves he seems, when in a moment forth he teems, his little song in gushes, as if it pleased him to disdain and mock the form which he did feign, while he was dancing with the train of leaves among the bushes. Or the description of the blue cap, and of the noontide silence, page 284, or the poem to the cuckoo, page 299, or lastly, though I might multiply the references to ten times the number, to the poem so completely Wordsworth's, commencing, Three years she grew, in sun and shower. Fifth, a meditative pathos, a union of deep and subtle thought with sensibility, a sympathy with man as man, the sympathy indeed of a contemplator, rather than a fellow-sufferer, or co-mate, spectator, out particeps, but of a contemplator, from whose view no difference of rank conceals the sameness of the nature, no injuries of wind or weather or toil or even of ignorance wholly disguise the human face divine the superscription and the image of the creator still remain legible to him under the dark lines with which guilt or calamity had cancelled or cross-barred it here the man and the poet lose and find themselves in each other the one as glorified the latter as substantiated in this mild and philosophic pathos wordsworth appears to me without a compeer such as he is so he writes see volume one page hundred and thirty four to hundred and thirty six or that most affecting composition, The Affliction of Margaret, of page 165 to 168, which no mother, and, if I may judge by my own experience, no parent can read without a tear. Or turn to that genuine lyric in the former edition entitled The Mad Mother, page 174 to 178, of which I cannot refrain from quoting two of the stanzas, both of them for their pathos, and the former for the fine transition in the two concluding lines of the stanza, so expressive of that deranged state in which, from the increased sensibility, the sufferer's attention is abruptly drawn off by every trifle, and in the same instant plucked back again by the one despotic thought, bringing home with it, by the blending, fusing power of imagination and passion, 
the alien object to which it had been so abruptly diverted no longer an alien but an ally and an inmate suck little babe oh suck again it cools my blood it cools my brain thy lips i feel them baby they draw from my heart the pain away oh press me with thy little hand it loosens something at my chest about that tight and deadly band i feel thy little fingers pressed the breeze i see is in the tree it comes to cool my babe and me thy father cares not for my breast tis thine sweet baby there to rest tis all thine own and if its hue be change that was so fair to view tis fair enough for thee my dove my beauty little child is flown but thou wilt live with me in love and what if my poor cheek be brown tis well for me thou canst not see how pale and wan it else would be last and pre-eminently i challenge for this poet the gift of imagination in the highest and strictest sense of the word in the play of fancy wordsworth to my feelings is not always graceful and sometimes recondite the likeness is occasionally too strange or demands too peculiar a point of view or is such as appears the creature of predetermined research rather than spontaneous presentation indeed his fancy seldom displays itself as mere and unmodified fancy but in imaginative power he stands nearest of all modern writers to shakespeare and milton and yet in a kind perfectly unborrowed and his own to employ his own words which are at once an instance and an illustration he does indeed to all thoughts and to all objects add the gleam the light that never was on sea or land the consecration and the poet's dream i shall select a few examples as most obviously manifesting this faculty but if i should ever be fortunate enough to render my analysis of imagination its origin and characters thoroughly intelligible to the reader he will scarcely open on a page of this poet's works without recognising more or less the presence and the influences of this faculty from the poem on the yew trees volume one page three hundred and three three hundred and four but worthier still of note are those fraternal four of borrowdale joined in one solemn and capacious grove huge trunks and each particular trunk a growth of intertwisted fibrous serpentine upcoiling and inveterately convolved not uninformed with fantasy and looks that threaten the profane a pillared shade upon whose grassless floor of red-brown hue by sheddings from the pinal umbrage tinged perennially beneath whose sable roof of boughs as if of festal purpose decked with unrejoicing berries ghostly shapes may meet up noontide fear and trembling hope silence and foresight death the skeleton and time the shadow there to celebrate as in a natural temple scattered o'er with altars undisturbed of mossy stone united worship or in mute repose to lie and listen to the mountain flood murmuring from glasamara's inmost caves the effect of the old man's figure in the poem of resolution and independence volume two page thirty three while he was talking thus the lonely place the old man's shape and speech all troubled me in my mind's eye i seemed to see him pace about the weary moors continually wandering about alone and silently or the eighth ninth nineteenth twenty sixth thirty first and thirty third in the collection of miscellaneous sonnets the sonnet on the subjugation of switzerland page two hundred and ten or the last ode from which i especially select the two following stanzas or paragraphs page three hundred and forty nine to three hundred and fifty our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting the soul that rises with us our life's star hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness but trailing clouds of glory do we come from god who is our home heaven lies about us in our infancy shades of the prison-house begin to close upon the growing boy but he beholds the light and whence it flows he sees it in his joy the youth who daily further from the east must travel still is nature's priest and by the vision splendid is on his way attended at length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day 
and page three hundred and fifty two to three hundred and fifty four of the same ode o joy that in our embers is something that doth live that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive the thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benedictions not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed delight and liberty the simple creed of childhood whether busy or at rest with new-fledged hope still fluttering in his breast not for these i raise the song of thanks and praise but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things fallings from us vanishings blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised but for those first affections those shadowy recollections which be they what they may are yet the fountain light of all our day and yet a master light of all our seeing uphold us cherish and have power to make our noisy years seem moments in the being of the eternal silence truths that wake to perish never which neither listlessness nor mad endeavour nor man nor boy nor all that is at enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy hence in a season of calm weather though inland far we be our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither can in a moment travel thither and see the children sport upon the shore and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore and since it would be unfair to conclude with an extract which though highly characteristic must yet from the nature of the thoughts and the subject be interesting or perhaps intelligible to but a limited number of readers i will add from the poet's last published work a passage equally wordsworthian of the beauty of which and of the imaginative power displayed therein there can be but one opinion and one feeling see white doe page five fast the churchyard fills anon look again and they all are gone the cluster round the porch and the folk who sat in the shade of the prior's oak and scarcely had they disappeared ere the prelusive hymn is heard with one consent the people rejoice filling the church with a lofty voice they sing a service which they feel for tis the sunrise now of zeal and faith and hope are in their prime in great eliza's golden time a moment ends a fervent din and all is hushed without and within for though the priest more tranquilly recites the holy liturgy the only voice which you can hear is the river murmuring near when soft the dusky trees between and down the path through the open green where is no living thing to be seen and through yon gateway where is found beneath the arch with ivy bound free entrance to the churchyard ground and right across the verdant sod towards the very house of god comes gliding in with lovely gleam comes gliding in serene and slow soft and silent as a dream a solitary doe white she is as lily of june and beauteous as the silver moon when out of sight the clouds are driven and she's left alone in heaven or like a ship some gentle day in sunshine sailing far away a glittering ship that hath the plain of ocean for her own domain what harmonious pensive changes wait upon her as she ranges round and through this pile of state overthrown and desolate now a step or two her way is through space of open day where the enamoured sunny light brightens her that was so bright now doth a delicate shadow fall falls upon her like a breath from some lofty arch or wall as she passes underneath the following analogy will i am apprehensive appear dim and fantastic but in reading bartram's travels i could not help transcribing the following lines as a sort of allegory or connected simile and metaphor of wordsworth's intellect and genius the soil is a deep rich dark mould on a deep stratum of tenacious clay and that on a foundation of rocks which often break through both strata lifting their backs above the surface the trees which chiefly grow here are the gigantic black oak magnolia grandiflora fraximus excelsior platane and a few stately tulip-trees what mr wordsworth will produce it is not for me to prophesy 
but i could pronounce with the liveliest convictions what he is capable of producing it is the first genuine philosophic poem the preceding criticism will not i am aware avail to overcome the prejudices of those who have made it a business to attack and ridicule mr wordsworth's compositions truth and prudence might be imagined as concentric circles the poet may perhaps have passed beyond the latter but he has confined himself far within the bounds of the former in designating these critics as too petulant to be passive to a genuine poet and too feeble to grapple with him men of palsied imaginations in whose minds all healthy action is languid who therefore feed as the many direct them or with the many are greedy after vicious provocatives so much for the detractors from wordsworth's merits on the other hand much as i might wish for their fuller sympathy i dare not flatter myself that the freedom with which i have declared my opinions concerning both his theory and his defects most of which are more or less connected with his theory either as cause or effect will be satisfactory or pleasing to all the poets admirers and advocates more indiscriminate than mine their admiration may be deeper and more sincere it cannot be but i have advanced no opinion either for praise or censure other than as text introductory to the reasons which compel me to form it above all i was fully convinced that such a criticism was not only wanted but that if executed with adequate ability it must conduce in no mean degree to mr wordsworth's reputation his fame belongs to another age and can neither be accelerated nor retarded how small the proportion of the defects are to the beauties i have repeatedly declared and that no one of them originates in deficiency of poetic genius had they been more and greater i should still as a friend to his literary character in the present age consider an analytic display of them as pure gain if only it removed as surely to all reflecting minds even the foregoing analysis must have removed the strange mistakes so slightly grounded yet so widely and industriously propagated of mr wordsworth's turn for simplicity i am not half as much irritated by hearing his enemies abuse him for vulgarity of style subject and conception as i am disgusted with the gilded side of the same meaning as displayed by some affected admirers with whom he is forsooth a sweet simple poet and so natural that little master charles and his younger sister are so charmed with them that they play at goody blake or at johnny and betty foy were the collection of poems published with these biographical sketches important enough which i am not vain enough to believe to deserve such a distinction even as i have done so would i be done unto for more than eighteen months have the volume of poems entitled sibylline leaves and the present volume up to this page been printed and ready for publication but ere i speak of myself in the tones which are alone natural to me under the circumstances of late years i would fain present myself to the reader as i was in the first dawn of my literary life when hope grew round me like the climbing vine and fruits and foliage not my own seem mine for this purpose i have selected from the letters which i wrote home from germany those which appeared likely to be most interesting and at the same time most pertinent to the title of this work End of chapter twenty two